Today I'm talking about we believe, a little bit about, a little bit about what we believe. And I was asking some people in the hallway, did you believe in some funny things when you were a kid? Like I, I was seriously scared of the dark as a child. Seriously scared of the things that lived under my bed at night, you know. And uh, I just had this strange belief that if, if my entire body was covered, then the things that were under my bed couldn't get me. But if there was one appendage that was hanging out, like a foot or an arm, <laughs> I was in serious trouble because then it could grab me and pull me under the bed. And in Illinois, in the humidity of summer, let me tell you how uncomfortable it is covering every part of your body at night because you're so afraid <laughs> that something's going to grab you. But that was my strange belief. Kathy Cheney, uh, who, you know, had some roots in Oklahoma and, and the land of tornadoes, she, you know, knew as a child that when cold air fronts and warm air fronts get together, they make tornadoes. So their air conditioning unit was in their kitchen. So she had this deep fear when she opened the dishwasher <laughs> after the heat cycle <laughs> that it would mix with the air coming out of the air conditioner. <laughs> and she would create this tornado that would blow their house away. We believe. What do we believe? I read an article by... Michael Grabowski in um, the Christian Post about the Baptist Bible College recently that had 50 faculty and staff members resign because the college adopted a lifestyle statement and they felt they couldn't sign it, so they resigned. And here's an excerpt from that article. According to the document which faculty and staff were obliged to sign, an employee of Shorter could not, among other things, take part in drug use, premarital sex, adultery, and homosexuality. The statement also called for Shorter employees to be active members of a church and be committed Bible-believing Christians. I also heard a radio report about this, too, in... The reporter stated that some of the 50 had problems with the homosexuality statement, which is controversial, and we can understand uh, that there's a controversy there. But most of them couldn't sign the statement because of what it was saying about faith in God. And I was taken aback by that. Um, how can 50 people work for a Christian Baptist Bible college and not have a clear understanding of what Baptists believe. I'm not a Baptist, but I'm fairly certain that they believe in God and that they have faith in God. And to be working for an organization and not know what they believe, it's confusing to me. Would you not ask, what do you believe? Before you started working there, would you not have a clear understanding of what their tenets of faith are, what they stand on? We claim to be Christians, but do we know what we believe? You come to this church every Sunday, but do you know what this church believes? Do you know what we stand on, what our core 
beliefs are. I also read an article, it was from 2009 by the Barna Group, and it was titled, Most American Christians Do Not Believe That Satan or the Holy Spirit Exists. The article started with this statement. A new nationwide survey, survey of adults' spiritual beliefs conducted by the Barna Group suggests that Americans who consider themselves to be Christian have a diverse set of beliefs, but many of those beliefs are contradictory or at least inconsistent. Do we know what we believe? We see this effort to construct and pen core beliefs all throughout church history. The early church Christians, they didn't have the Bible as we know it today. They had letters written to them by apostles, by followers of Christ, and they had the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't have the Bible as a whole. Each church that that letter was sent to would be in possession of that letter. So they started somewhere in the second century getting together and sharing the letters. And then they decided, we need to pull from these letters our core beliefs. And that gave birth to the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to read to you the earliest known version of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. The Apostles' Creed was revisited in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. There was a big controversy in the church. There was a priest who rose up and he started saying that Jesus wasn't deity, that he wasn't the son of God, and that he wasn't eternal. And the other priests were saying, oh yes he is. He's eternal. He's the very God of God. And so they came together as a council and for two months they debated, what do we believe? And they went back to the Apostles' Creed and they said, this is our core belief. And then they added a few more statements like very God of God. And they added a few more statements to say, we believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Then in the year 1517, we see another revisit of the core beliefs. What do we believe? As Martin Luther walks up to the church door and he tacks his thesis on the door. Why did he write a thesis? Because he wanted to rebut this belief of um, paying for forgiveness of sins. There were a few Catholic priests at the time who decided they needed to fundraise. And the way they were going to do that is they were going to start charging for the forgiveness of sins. And Martin Luther said, wait a minute. Salvation is a free gift from God. 
This is what we believe. Wait a minute. Let's take a look at the scriptures and see what we believe. And he wrote a thesis to rebut the things that had crept up in the church culturally that was threatening what they believe. And it gave birth to the Reformation, to the churches, the Protestant churches we know in America today. So here we stand in 2012. And as a church, what will we believe? What are our core beliefs and tenets of faith? I believe what we believe is being challenged by our culture, and we need to revisit those tenets of faith, our core beliefs. I believe that the accuracy of the Bible, the belief in the one true God, the deity of Jesus, the fall and salvation of man are seriously under fire by our culture. People are asking, did God really create the world? Is this word really accurate? Can we trust it? Will a loving God send people to hell? Is homosexuality a sin? We're looking at this stuff and we're asking, what is the truth? And in today's culture, when we see people debating about politics or debating about what they believe in, we've kind of gotten a little, we've kind of gotten a little mean, spirited about it. It feels like, sometimes when I'm watching those debates on TV, it feels like they've, um, they've made their words missiles. And they're launching them, not only to make their ideas feel, uh, seem right, but to destroy the character and beliefs of the person they're talking to. How do we debate what we believe and still be gentlemanly? How do we as a church get together and say, this is what we believe without blowing up the person who believes differently? How do we do that? In 2012, how do we know who's right? Who's telling the truth? The importance of knowing what you believe and reminding yourself of those core beliefs is spoken about in the Bible. I'd like to read to you from 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, but I'd like to pray first. Dear God, I love you so much, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity to speak about your word. And I pray, God, that you would Help me to speak well, to do what's right. And I pray that your word would work in all of our lives to help us to be better, to know you more. Thank you, God, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Second Peter, therefore I will always remind you about these things even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. And it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. So I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I'm gone. For we are not making up clever stories. 
when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in this message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. And here lies a fundamental belief of Christians, a fundamental belief of this church that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. They spoke from God. We believe in the inspired word as the all-sufficient rule for faith and practice. We believe that these scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, are verbally inspired by God. They are the revelation of God to men. They are the infallible, authoritative rule of faith and conduct. Infallible, authoritative. They are our rule for faith and conduct. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, Therefore we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. This word is the very word of God. And I know that I'm using the word itself to make that proof, but we all know here it's the word of God because it's the power that has changed your life. You're sitting here today because this word has changed your life. It has made a difference. We don't accept it as mere human ideas. We don't write it off as something made up by man. To believe something on authority means to um, believe it because someone you trust told you it was so. A lot of things that you believe about life, you believe on authority. I believe that New York City exists, but I have never been there and I've never seen it. I believe it on the authority that I've read about it and I've seen pictures about it, and my loved ones have told me about their trips when they went to New York City. But I can't prove in, with my own words and my own thoughts that New York City exists without saying, someone else told me about it. 
a lot of what we believe, we believe on authority. We believe there's a solar system on authority because the scientists told us so. We believe our body circulates blood because a doctor has told us so. We believe that there are atoms, even though we can't see them, because someone smart told us it's true. So we believe it. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Every historical statement is believed on authority. None of us have seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada, but we believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them, in fact, on authority. A person who balked about authority and other things, as some people do in religion, would have, not, would have to be content to know nothing all his life. We believe this word on authority because Peter and Matthew and all these people who wrote the books of the Bible saw what they saw and they wrote it down. And the people who saw things have been telling people for generations, this is what happened. We believe it on authority because we trust that they were who they said they were and they saw what they said they saw. This inspired word is the authoritative rule of faith and conduct in our lives. It teaches us, it corrects us, it prepares us and equips us to do every good work. Let's look at Timothy 3.15. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. It shows us what is right. It shows us what is wrong. It equips us. It teaches us. It's the very words of God. Colossians 2, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am telling you these, this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. When we're needed, when we're confronted with the need to have wisdom and knowledge, we can look in this book and we're going to find it there. When our faith is being challenged by well-crafted arguments. We can look to this book and find the answers. We can trust that it is accurate. When this book tells us something is sin, then it's sin. It's sin. It's what it says. We're not picking on people. We're not making up stuff so we can Lord over others. We're just looking at this book and it says it's sin. So we say it is sin. It's not because we don't love. 
It's not because we want everybody to be free to believe what they want to believe. It's because this word says, hey, that is sin. Stay away from it. When it says something's right, then it's right. It's a directive for an abundant life in Christ. It's our roadmap to eternal life with God forever in heaven. It was interesting to watch Barbara Walters' special on heaven. Did you see that the other night? She traveled all around the world. She spoke to religious world leaders, to a terrorist, to an atheist, to a scientist, to a psychologist to find out her answers about heaven. Where is it and how do I get there? She made this statement that uh, most Americans get their views on heaven from Hollywood rather than the pew. And she named all those great movies like Field of Dreams and Angels in the Outfield and all those movies where we've uh, been given a picture of heaven. And most Americans believe Hollywood's version of heaven because that's where they hear about heaven. They don't hear about it in the pew. Barbara didn't need to travel all around the world to find her answers. She didn't need to speak to the Dalai Lama. She just needed to open this book. They're right here. All the answers are right here in this book. Here's a thought for you. Once you've found the answers that you're looking for in this book, what are you going to do with them? Do you believe this is the very word of God? Are you going to stand by it? Are you going to choose to follow it? My son loves buffets. I think he loves buffets because the choices, right? Because he is a fan of meat. He's like, he's like got the, I don't know, the bacon effect. I laugh because whenever you see that bacon strips commercial where the dog's running, bacon, 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 it reminds me of my son because I don't know what it is, but he could have his headphones on upstairs playing his drums and just rattling the bacon package. I mean, he just has this, this inner sense that bacon has come out of the refrigerator. And within seconds of cooking it, he is like in the kitchen. Do I smell bacon? Bacon? Are we having bacon? I'm so excited it's bacon. And so when we go to buffets, I think he's excited because he gets like more than one choice of meat. And he can just fill his plate with all this meat. And then he has his rules, you know, his rules of eating. Like if, the, if it's named greens... It's not going on the plate. <laughs> Vegetable? No, it's not going on the plate. If, if it has salad in its name, probably not going to end up on the plate. So he loves buffets because then he can choose, you know, it's not mama saying, you have to eat your vegetables. When we go to a buffet, he can put whatever he wants on that plate, and it's just going to be a bunch of meat. And maybe if there's mashed potatoes and gravy and a piece of pizza, but there are not going to be any vegetables anywhere on that plate. And if you think about it, can we treat this word like a buffet? You know, can we look at this word and say, I really like me some love. 
So John 3.16, for God to love the world, man, that is going on the plate. He loved me. I'm going to put that one on the plate. That one is it for me. But, you know, that Matthew 5.22, that verse is kind of yucky. It's kind of green. I'm not so sure I'm going to put that on my plate. If you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. If you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Yeah, that one's not so nice. I like to call people idiots who are idiots. I really don't want to put that one on the plate. I just want to leave it over there. I have the right to, be, to remain angry. Right? What do we do with this word? Do we treat it like a buffet? We'll just take the parts we like and kind of dump the parts we don't like over there. Just kind of pretend they're not there. I think we got to put it all on the plate. If this is the very word of God, then we got to we got to stand by all of it. We can't throw out the parts we don't like. And we got to be careful in studying it. It's a whole. And, and sometimes we get in trouble when we just pick something out. You know, you've heard those campaign slip-ups where a soundbite is aired all over TV and you think the person said something, but then when you hear the whole thing they said, you say, wait a minute, that sounded totally different than the soundbite. That's not really what they said. The Bible's a lot like that. If you pull out one scripture verse without reading what's before it and what's after it, without looking at the Bible as a whole, you can get into a heap of trouble. I mean, if we did that, then today, every one of us would be walking around without hands. Because there is a scripture verse that says, if your hand sins, cut it off, right? But we know because we've looked at the book as a whole that Jesus was speaking metaphorically and not literally. And then he's just saying, sin is bad, stay away from it. So we got to be careful. We got to be careful with these 66 books of the Bible that we look at them as a whole. Let's move on to the second point. We believe in the one true God and in the deity of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one true God. He is the loving creator of our world. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This God knows you and he wants to have a relationship with you. He created you out of love. And he wants to have time with you. He wants you to know him. Isaiah 43.10 says, But you are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord and there is no other Savior. The one true God. He loved us so much that he sent his one and only son 
to the world to be an atonement for our sins. That means to take the place, to make us right with God. We read about the love the Father God has for the Son in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, ascended on Jesus, and the voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here the sonship of Jesus is declared by God himself. And we see what a sacrifice it was for God the Father to send his son to the world because he loved him. He loved him. The scriptures declare the sonship and deity of Jesus. They show how his life and his death and his resurrection were born out of love and obedience to the Father and a great love for this creation they had made, mankind. I'm just going to list a few things here that the scripture declares, but for sake of time, I'm just putting the scripture reference. I don't have time to read them today. But you can write them down and look them up when you get home. But the, the scriptures declare this. They declare his virgin birth. We see that in Matthew, in, in Luke. They declare he lived a sinless life. You see it in Hebrews and 1 Peter. This isn't exhaustive. There are many other scripture verses, but just for time, it's a short list. They declare his miracles. You can read about it in Acts 2.22 and Acts 10.38. His substitutionary work in the cross. What that means is he was a substitute for us on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. His bodily resurrection from the dead, we see in Matthew and Luke and 1 Corinthians, and his exaltation to the right hand of God. It's declared in Scripture, the sonship and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read a little bit more about Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 through 23 says, Christ is a visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in heavenly realms and on the earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. 
Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. That brings us to our third point. We believe in the fall and salvation of man. Man was created to be good and upright. We were created in God's image. We were created to be like him. However, by voluntary transgression, man fell and incurred not only physical death, but a spiritual death, which is separation from God. We read about it in Genesis 1:26, And God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And then he placed them in a garden and gave them some simple rules to live by. The Lord God placed a man in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.15 to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And then came Satan in the form of a snake with a very well-crafted argument to tempt Eve to get her to decide to disobey God's commands. And we see Genesis 3, 6, that the woman was convinced by the snake. She saw that the tree was beautiful. She heard his well-crafted argument. It looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. And there was the fall of man. In Romans 5.12 it says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. This sin, it not only leads to physical death, but spiritual death, which results in eternal separation from God, which is hell. We believe in heaven, and we believe in hell. It's what we believe. Why? Because it says so. It says so. But the good news about heaven and hell is it doesn't, heaven does not exclude anyone who wants to be there. It is a free gift open to anyone who would like to receive it. Because the world would not be left in this fallen fate of sin and separation from God because God so loved. He so loved. 
Romans 5.18, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Jesus is man's only hope for salvation. Salvation is received through repentance and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not the only one way to heaven, then why did he die on the cross? What was the point? And why did all those men who followed him suffer terrible deaths? Because they chose to follow. They did it because it was right and it was the truth and it was the very plan of God. When we were utterly helpless in Romans 5, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. He came at just the right time. And he's made us right with God. His kindness and his love and his mercy brings us new life through the Holy Spirit. It talks about in Titus how the Holy Spirit renews us, regenerates us. It makes us right with God as we have faith in Jesus. This inspired word. What are you going to do with it? Do you believe it? What do you believe? This is why life groups are so important for us. Because we get together and we look at this word and we say to each other, what do we believe? We ask questions. And we love each other and encourage one another to believe this. That's why sending your kid to kids church is so important. That's why youth group is vital. So we can stand around this word and remind ourselves, this is what we believe. What will we believe?